Three people are home. One winds up dead. Was it murder or suicide or somehow a little bit of both? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join us. We're crossing the line. This case we're going to talk about today is really mysterious. It's, it's a different kind of case because you can look at it in many different ways. And that's what I like about it. So I'm going to have Everett give us the quick and dirty and tell us about the Tammy Poole case. So here's what we're supposed to believe happened. This guy named Michael Poole threatened suicide constantly. He accused his wife, Tammy, of being the reason for his misery and threatened her with divorce. And then she says Michael committed suicide while she tried to stop him. Or did he? To really understand this case, we have to go back to 2004. And that's when Tammy met Michael Poole. Michael was recently divorced. But here's the thing. He told Tammy his ex-wife had a temporary protection order against him. Which is basically a red flag right away when you're dating, you would think. That's a deal breaker for me on the old bumble. Right? For sure. Yeah. Tammy apparently said she could not believe he was anything other than a pure-hearted, helpful man he portrayed himself to be. This is something that's common in the beginning. Right. It's completely honeymoon stage. But no surprise, that soon changed. Tammy says Michael was apparently very jealous and would often accuse Tammy of cheating on him. She says that he would beat her and would threaten suicide. Even despite all of that, a year later, she and Michael got married. This thing went from one to 1,000 in a few months. Right. So no surprise, the abuse did not end after they got married. Later that year, Tammy says there was an instance where Michael was driving their car and Tammy was in the passenger seat and Michael was driving towards a tree. And she says that Michael had ejected himself before he could suffer any injury. But obviously, Tammy, not aware of what he was doing, was stuck in the car during the crash and ended up being hospitalized and had a really long and painful recovery. I mean, we don't know, though, if that was a suicide mission or he actually tried to kill Tammy. And to add to that, I would say we don't know if that's exactly what happened. Right. A lot of what we're reading is based on court documents from what she has said and some online Facebook posts that she has written herself. So that's her story. And she's sticking to it. She is sticking to it. Even after that crash, she still stayed with him and, and the abuse just got worse. Tammy said Michael would hold like a loaded rifle to his head and tell her, I want you to see me die. It's just such a power play where it makes it feel like she has control, but really he does, right? He's just playing with her emotions because he knows, presumably, that he's not going to pull the trigger. And when we get into cases like this, uh, it is a he said, she said, right? Right. And- when I look at cases like this, you have to look at the victimology and you have to look at the back history of all the players because, you know, past behaviors are a good predictor for future behaviors. The red flags. Yeah. And the thing, too, about Michael is he would say it was Tammy's fault that she didn't act right. So this is why I'm doing this. This is why I'm sticking a gun to my head because it's your fault, Tammy. In her words... She said, I always pleaded him 
back to sanity. I felt as though it was my duty to save him and constantly excused and rationalized his behavior. Why didn't she leave this guy is the question that's just coming to mind now. I don't understand. That's the question you ask about a lot of abusive cases. There's a codependency issue there. I mean, it's a lot of mind games, right? He's trying to mind fuck her is what he's doing. Oh, he is definitely mind fucking her. Like He's telling her, I'm in control. And if I kill myself, it's your fault, right? Well, I think it also is it goes back to accusing her of cheating. Yeah. And already setting it up so that she feels like she has to shower him with love and really show her devotion and good point. Really make him feel like she is his. I mean, this really messes with a person because if you're constantly talking someone off the ledge, you are always on the edge wondering what he's going to do next. So we're now going two years into their marriage, specifically April 22nd, 2007. It was a night when Michael's sister and brother-in-law paid a visit to his house. Tammy was there. And they said that they saw Michael tell Tammy that he wanted a divorce and that he would be seeking a restraining order against her. (laughs) And so they said that Tammy replied by hitting Michael. And she said that she would rather kill him before she let him leave her. She also accused him of having an affair as well. Michael's sister and brother-in-law say that they then saw him start to pack up his things and put them in the trunk of his car. And let me get this straight. This all happens in front of the brother-in-law and the sister-in-law. They testified to this. Correct. So we're going off of what they're saying, but it is interesting why they were there that night. It makes me think that he purposely had them come over so that he would have a witness to him saying that he wants a divorce, to him saying that he wants a restraining order against her, maybe to prevent any kind of reaction that she ended up giving, which was physical violence. I mean, the relationship, though, is very volatile. It's explosive, right? This is an unstable, unhealthy relationship. And and there's this sense that over the period of two years, there's this big thing building up that's going to happen. So going back to your point, maybe Michael sensed it also and said, you know what? I want witnesses here when I pack my shit and when I tell her she's going to get a restraining order and when I tell her I'm leaving her. He wanted witnesses. Right. Seemingly everything was simmering down and at some point they ended up leaving the house. And that's when things get interesting. Tammy claims that, and here's a quote, Michael held a rifle to his head and pulled the trigger after he took aim at me. She says, I begged him to stop and tried to pry the gun from his hands, only to end up grazed by the bullet as he pulled the trigger. I believed it was my fault and attempted to assist in CPR to no avail. So can you see that scenario playing out? If you're a juror, I'm going to put you in the jury's shoes. Mm -hmm. Do you believe her story there? Well, I think that just based on this quote and this quote alone, without knowing any other forensic evidence, if she has already stated in the past that there is this history of him holding guns to his head and threatening her, that it does seem plausible that this could happen again. You know what? There's no record of Tammy being violent in the past. So if this was a common occurrence, then it doesn't seem out of the ordinary for him to do it again, especially after a night where they've had a heated argument. I do have questions about being grazed by the bullet as he pulls the trigger, and that's something that we can get into when we get further into the evidence. But from that, it does set up 
the story as being somewhat believable. And here's another fact. Tammy's adult son was in the house and came running into the bedroom when he heard the gunshot to see what happened. Michael died from a gunshot wound to the left side of his forehead, just above his left eye. The bullet was fired from a Remington 22 semi-automatic rifle that was found in their bedroom. Well, see, that's interesting to me because, and I don't have a vast knowledge of guns, but a rifle is very long. And so now I have questions of, first of all, why would someone try to shoot themselves with a rifle pointing? What if it's the only gun in the house? Yeah, but the way you hold one, that's when I'm questioning how she got grazed. Because with a rifle being as long as it is, and he's getting shot above his forehead, so is she somewhere up by his head and not down by where the trigger is, which would be further down to the lower half of his body? Those are excellent points. And I think when we talk about someone using a rifle, to commit suicide, we automatically are drawn to the TV detective who says, well, was it possible? That's the first thing that you want to look at. Right. When in actuality, I've spoken to EMTs, people first on scenes of suicides, and it's not uncommon to run into someone who's used a rifle to kill themselves. You figure out a way. I mean, it's not But it like, is more complicated, right? It's more it's complicated. A, and would you do it with someone in the other room who will likely- presumably try to stop it. The image that I get from this death scene is two people are fighting. They're screaming at each other. They're yelling things at each other that they wouldn't normally say. Right. Someone breaks out a a gun. They start struggling. The gun goes off. A bullet ends up in Michael's head. Mm -hmm. Now, I think you don't want to look at the gun evidence. I think you want to look at the, the, the ballistics, the bullet evidence to see how it entered his head first, you know, on an angle, straight, what? Right. Was there any gunshot residue on her hands? Was there any gunshot residue on his hands, on his head? I mean, there's all kinds of science we can apply to this. Well, what Tammy says about what happened is quite interesting. Tammy's stories, they begin to change. So the first responders, EMTs, Tammy tells them Michael had shot himself accidentally. Mm-hmm. Then she told authorities that the rifle discharged when it got caught on a broken laundry basket as Michael attempted to pick up the rifle. Yeah, that's bizarre. Bizarre. Bananas to me. And later, she says that she had been shot while she and Michael struggled for possession of the rifle. Now, she told friends and neighbors that Michael had actually committed suicide, and she didn't tell that to the police to avoid hurting his family members. We've got at least three different stories being told already. Yeah, and one of them sounds like it took a lot to make up if she did. But the fact is there's three different stories here. And it really doesn't matter what story she tells. It's the fact that it changed so much. that it changed. That's suspect right away. So Tammy writes, quote, I still could not admit the truth about Michael or our relationship. I was so distraught that I could not even admit his death was suicide. I began telling everyone, including law enforcement, that it was a horrible accident. Ba-boom. <laughs> well, lo and behold, two months later, in June 2007, Tammy was arrested for the murder of Michael Poole. One year later, in 2008, her trial began. And let me just note here that Tammy actually has a criminal past. She had 
previous convictions for a number of things, burglary, motor vehicle theft, making false statements to cops, cough, cough, and a violation of the Georgia Controlled Substances Act. So none of those charges are violent. You know, when I say that there's no violence in her history, there's no violence in her history. Those are crimes committed, it seems to me, by a, a drug addict. Fair, but she does have a history with making false statements to police. That's interesting. That is something to take note of if you're on a jury or a cop. Yeah, it's a precedent. You know, if I'm a juror and I hear, well, she's made false statements before to law enforcement. She's already not in a good position. Definitely. With that history. I would not want to be Tammy at this point. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. So the medical examiner said that the fatal wound was more likely inflicted by someone other than Michael rather than self-inflicted, given that the weapon was a rifle and that the location of Michael's wound was not a common one for a self-inflicted gunshot wound. I have a problem with that medical examiner's opinion. It's like, well, it's a rifle and where the fatal wound was, I don't think he could have done it. And it's like, where's the science to back that up? Well, he is the science to back it up, right? Like he's the medical examiner. He's studying the angle at which the gunshot is going into him. Well, forensics, criminal crime scene forensics would do the trajectory and that sort of thing. But he would definitely look at the angle of the bullet But for him to come out and say all of that, I think he's got to back it up with some good, hard evidence, scientific evidence. Well, in terms of evidence, this is what I find the most fascinating. There was no gunshot residue on either Tammy or Michael. So several experts have explained that this might be due to the fact that the primer of the ammunition that was used in the shooting did not contain something called antimony. And antimony is like this brittle silver type of metalloid, which is one of three metals that are usually associated with gunshot residue. So this is interesting to me because I've never heard this before. I can see it with a 22, though. I really can. I did not know that no gunshot residue was a thing. I always thought there has to be gunshot residue, period. It's like the size of the bullet. It's the size of the chamber, and it's the enclosure of the chamber. So there's going to be no gunshot residue maybe spraying out of there. And then the rifle barrel is so far away that any residue from there is going to end up on his head, right? Right. That makes sense, why there wouldn't be anything on his hands. Right. But there would be some kind of residue on clothes or wherever the bullet struck, right? On his head. Right. Well... In this case, there was none. So I guess that's a moot point. But in this situation, it helps Tammy's case. A little bit. But this next fact, it certainly does not help Tammy. According to the court, quote, a woman who was incarcerated in the same facility as Tammy testified that Tammy told her she had gotten Michael out of the picture in order to be with a married man she recently had been seeing. Mm, Twist. I I mean, is that a twist or is that in every one of these cases? (laughs) That's true. Like every Law and Order episode. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) This witness had previously failed a drug court program. So what Tammy and her first lawyers did was bring in three people who worked at the program and who knew this woman and give their impression of her. And what they basically said, the three of them was, you can't trust this woman. 
So that shouldn't have even been part of trial at all. I mean, yeah, I can see it being part of the trial, but I think it's grasping for straws. It's a bad move, I think, on the lawyer's part, because you should never try to disqualify a witness by something that has to do with like her reputation with a third party. So we have like a three degrees of separation from this woman, right? We have a worker inside of a drug court program saying these three people, yeah, don't trust them. So it's like, I'm supposed to take this person for their word, you know, so I think it's reaching. Right. My main point is it shows how weak your case is. When you're bringing out three witnesses from a drug court program and you're trying to disqualify them, you've got a weak case. But doesn't that happen all the time with court cases? You know, they bring in an eyewitness and then they dig into that eyewitness's background to see if they ever had unpaid parking tickets or whatever it well, may we, be. We do that through documentation, right? So right. if there's documentation that this woman is untrustworthy, mm. bring it in, enter it as evidence as you cross-examine her. I hardly ever see like witnesses brought in to talk about another witness. It just tells you how weak the case is. Well, the court did just that. They tossed out the defense's argument. They said that they're not going to consider what these three witnesses that work at a drug program have to say about one person's reputation. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good move. It's hearsay. And you know what? You're not going to come into my court and bash somebody on hearsay. That's ridiculous. One other thing is that this former cellmate of Tammy's also testified that Tammy had offered to pay her to destroy the green shirt that Tammy was wearing when Michael was killed, as well as to get rid of a suitcase and aluminum box that presumably contained drug paraphernalia. And for the record, the court said that the green shirt actually tested negative for gunshot residue, but it did test positive for stains made by the victim's blood. That's interesting that this Sally who came forward would know those things. You see, these aren't things that she could have read about in the newspaper, you know? Right. So she's kind of given information that only she could get from Tammy. But if you like whittled down what she's saying, what she knows is that Tammy was wearing a green shirt. Right. That Michael packed a suitcase right. because he was leaving. And that there wasn't an aluminum box. And, you know, if it did contain drugs, maybe that was just in conversation that Tammy did mention. So to play devil's advocate, she's taking three just very basic facts and kind of she could be twisting them for all we know. I find it interesting that you make a good juror. I think I'd make an awful juror because I would spend so many hours weighing both sides. It would it would You'd be undecided. Me. You'd be one I of would those. Be, it would haunt me forever. But I find it interesting that like the court said that the green shirt tested negative for gunshot residue, which again goes back to the antimony that we were discussing. You know, this evidence, it's kind of I think it's consistent with Tammy trying to stop him from killing himself, mm -hmm. not her killing him. You know, you fire a 22 rifle close enough to kill a man and there's gonna definitely be some sort of particles something on your clothes or your hands neither of which was found right they're gonna find something this baffles me that nothing has been found except for michael's blood was on her shirt which doesn't change one of her stories one of them the the drug charges against this woman were dropped four months after tammy's sentencing claims tammy so did she cut a deal 
did she come forward knowing she was going to get a deal or maybe hoping for a deal? I mean, and got that information and thought, hmm, this could be my way out. That happens every day in the prison system. You know, somebody tells somebody something and they run to the warden and say, I have information about a crime that I want to bring forward. But and that's fine if it's truth. But yeah. But, you know, if you're making it up, you know, that's that's a crime. So the trial lasted for two and a half months. And even though Tammy says that she later did tell law enforcement that Michael's death was a suicide, she later revoked her statement in favor of accidental death. She ultimately was convicted of murdering Michael, as well as being in possession of a firearm while being a convicted felon herself for simple battery and for making a false statement. Tammy was sentenced to life plus five years, the latter of which was for being in possession of a firearm while also being a convicted felon. Tammy appealed her case immediately. So now we come to really Tammy's appeal. Let me ask you something, Christina. I'm curious about this. There's a lot of this going on now. I'm innocent. Murderers coming forward and claiming they're innocent. And there's a lot of cases being solved by DNA and forensic genealogy, et cetera. Right. Where do you weigh in on the scale as far as all these claims of innocence? Do you believe a majority of them? Do you give them the benefit of the doubt truthfully? Or do you just believe that they're guilty because they've been convicted? I think a lot of people tend to believe guilty before proven innocent rather than innocent before proven guilty. We're going to get to some of this stuff, I'll call it, that Tammy claims is for her case on the appeal. But I just want to say one thing. So Tammy also alleged that the trial court made a mistake when it didn't remove a juror and investigate further after the would-be juror admitted that she knew Tammy's landlord. That's like a direct connection. And it's definitely a conflict of interest. And they did not make any efforts to remove this juror, which is... Apparently they didn't. ...a problem in itself. The, the next day, before she was sworn in, the juror sent a note to the court saying, I have a preconceived opinion of this witness. What I have to say would not benefit the defense. But yet they kept her in. Well, when I look at that alone, I think she should win the first appeal on that alone because it's terribly biased and it's just not fair to the defendant. That's right. going back to what you said earlier in the show that you're presumed innocent. Here we're saying you're presumed guilty because we're just going to do whatever the hell we want to do in this trial. So she said she was, quote, the recipient of ineffective assistance of trial counsel. Right, because they should have fought against that. There's something else. Listen to this. Tammy was appointed a public defender. Mm -hmm. This guy was technically Michael's second cousin by marriage. That's ridiculous that this many connections would be allowed into court. I mean, are we talking about Mayberry here? No. This is a trial court, and these are definitely items that she should have won the appeal on. You know, we're talking 2008 here. We're not talking 1942. I mean, they throw out jurors if the person has heard of the case or... Read about it in a newspaper. And here we have Michael's second cousin by marriage. And they're like, sure, why not? I'm sure he has no opinions of her. <laughs> so Michael's second cousin is defending the person who murdered his second cousin. Right. It goes to show you that if we were ever to do a post-mortem on lots of murder trials, we're going to find all kinds of stuff that- So many holes. Yeah. 
we only see in the media the high-profile cases, but murder cases go on every day. That's why I'm always open now to listening to people like Tammy to see what they have to say. Granted, nine times out of 10, when I get a letter or somebody calls me, I listen, I start to look at the documents. I'm like, I'm not taking this any further. I mean, this this person's guilty. But something in Tammy's case stunk. What's interesting is that in her motion for a new trial, Tammy brought a firearms expert who could testify that the model of the Remington semi-automatic rifle that Michael had allegedly used had this design defect that would sometimes allow it to fire without the trigger being pulled, which is a huge defect if you have to ask me. I mean, I would have to see testimony on that. And that's a big ask right there. Well, let's add to these issues is that her previous trial lawyer admitted that he had never heard of this defect until being told about it. Michael's second cousin, you mean? Correct. So Tammy's appeal eventually reached the Georgia Supreme Court. But in 2012, the court denied her appeal. Shocking. So after that failed appeal, Tammy then filed a habeas corpus petition through her new lawyer. You know, in this case here, I wanted to talk to Tammy herself, but the prison wouldn't let me. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk to her attorney. This is all a lot to digest and... A lot more has actually happened since her appeal was denied. So after the break, we're going to be joined by Tammy's new lawyer, who will tell us more about the case and what's next for Tammy. To help us better understand Tammy Poole's case, we've invited her lawyer, Brandon Boulard, to join us. Brandon is a criminal appellate lawyer who has spent his career representing defendants fighting for a second chance. Before he started his private practice, he spent more than 12 years in Georgia's public defender system, and he is the current chair of the State Bar of Georgia's Appellate Practice Law Section. Brandon started working with Tammy Poole when she filed a habeas corpus petition, which is generally like a last-ditch effort a defendant has to appeal a conviction. Well, the habeas court rejected that filing. But Brandon has just recently applied to the Supreme Court of Georgia for a certificate of probable cause to appeal the habeas court's decision. I know, a lot to swallow. The bottom line here is Tammy Poole is running out of options. This appeal that Brandon's filing now, this is like a Hail Mary. It's like throwing that pass with two seconds left in the game to the end zone and hoping to get a touchdown. The Georgia Supreme Court will either grant or deny the application. And this takes us up to today, where Tammy is incarcerated and waiting for the court's decision. Brandon, I want to thank you for joining us. No, it's my pleasure. Can you walk us through the events of what happened the day that Michael Poole died? Would you call it a murder? I wouldn't call it a murder. I wouldn't even call it a homicide, actually, at this point. I mean, to to break that down, when I say homicide, I mean the killing of one person by another person. Right. By murder, I would mean either the intentional killing, the, the purposeful killing of one person by another, or in Georgia especially, a killing that is the reasonably foreseeable consequence of some other felony, like you're committing an armed robbery and somebody gets shot and dies. That That's murder, even if you didn't intend the death. And you wouldn't call this case any one of those? I wouldn't call this case any of those. I mean, the state proceeded on a theory of murder, the theory that Tammy shot her husband, Michael. But that was premised on this idea from the state's medical examiner at trial that the shot that killed him, and it was only one shot from a 22 rifle, the shot that killed him 
had to have been externally inflicted. And the only other person in the room was Tammy. That's not disputed. Right. There's some evidence that, that Michael was trying to move out. He had put his things in his car, but there was also evidence that he had taken the things back out of the car because they weren't there later. And there was evidence from Tammy's adult son that they had reconciled. They had calmed down and had sort of reengaged with one another and had a romantic time alone, after which there was a gunshot. And then Tammy screams, the son comes upstairs, finds him in the bedroom, and Michael's on the floor with a shot to the head, and he, he's dying. And so it would be mm-hmm. silly of me to say it's not suspicious circumstances when you just sort of walk in the room and, and see that. Sure. So it could either be one of two things. Either Tammy shot Michael, or Michael shot Michael. And then assuming that Tammy shot Michael, then it sort of breaks down further into, was it intentional? Was it a criminally culpable act? Or was it for some reason accidental? And on the other side, if Michael shot Michael, same thing. Was it an intentional act, suicide, or was it an accidental shooting for some reason? Say he was cleaning a gun, looking at it, whatever. Obviously police show up. What evidence do they have on her to arrest her at the time? Not much, really. There's the death. And then there's the suspicious circumstance. But the other thing you have to remember is that the quantum of evidence, the amount of evidence you need to arrest someone is vastly lower than what you would need to convict them at trial. You just need probable cause, basically. She did start changing her story, though. So that drew more suspicion, right? And why did she change her story so many times? The suggestion made at trial is that, well, first she's saying that she accidentally shot him, then she's saying it was suicide, but that's overreading the differences between her accounts. What is consistent in her accounts is that the wound was self-inflicted, that Michael shot himself, and the question is intent. Did he intend to shoot himself or not? But regardless of whether he intended to shoot himself or not, it was accidental. The nail in the coffin, though, at trial was this unchallenged opinion by a state medical examiner that the shot had to have been externally inflicted, which, if accepted as true, shoots holes in either of Tammy's. Yeah, lives. that's devastating for a defendant. Yes. And nobody nobody challenged it? Nobody challenged it. Uh, there, There's some discussion in the later proceedings that trial counsel considered it but rejected it. And then the the conclusion of the court on habeas corpus was that, well, they had to choose between suicide and accident, and they chose to go with accident. So it wasn't unreasonable for them to not investigate the suicide. Brandon, why don't you quickly explain the habeas, what it is for the layperson? When that fails, uh, the next option is a petition for a writ of habeas corpus. And what habeas corpus in basic terms is doing is you're suing the warden, the person who's holding you and saying that they don't have the constitutional authority to hold you because something in the process that led you to be incarcerated was unconstitutional and that you have no other way of getting at it. In Tammy's case, those are issues of effective assistance of counsel. But that's sort of where we are now, that the habeas court has also sort of misread the record. It said, well, no, it's either suicide or accident. When the important question is, did Tammy shoot him or not? Right. The state's medical examiner was was flat wrong that given the angle of the shot, the direction of the stippling on the forehead, that the shot was self-inflicted, that it was a self-inflicted wound. Really? That's from the medical examiner? Yes. That's from a subsequent, med- not the original medical okay. examiner, but mm-hmm. from a subsequent medical examiner. Mm-hmm. So what we go from is at trial, we go from an unchallenged testimony that Someone other than Michael shot Michael, 
And Tammy was the only other person who had that opportunity. One other thing I'm going through this case I found interesting was Tammy wrote a post about this in 2013 about all the things that were not investigated, the things that were overlooked, whether Mm -hmm. it be that there was a fingerprint on the barrel that shows how the gun was positioned and his toxicology was never entered in as evidence. Yeah. There's so much that was never tested, but yet somehow they were able to not need it to convict her. Can you explain what other things that were not considered? Sure. There's the question of toxicology. There, there is the question of possibly whose prints were on the gun. It's hard to know with prints on a gun just because the gun was in their room. So one, we don't know whose prints were on it. I presume that Michael's would have been on it. And I would presume Tammy's would not have been on it. But even if Tammy's had been on it, the gun was was in their home. Right. So it's, it's hard to know exactly how that's going to play out. Toxicology, what might have been affecting Michael's mental state to make him perhaps more likely to have been suicidal. And also, could the gun have been fired in the manner that, that Tammy suggested? Michael's right-handed. And so he's basically taking the gun across his body. So he is pulling the trigger with the right hand and has the barrel at his right temple. It was not introduced in the habeas court. And so it's not a part of the record on review, but there's a forensic opinion out there that the gun absolutely could have been fired in this way. The real problem for me or for where we are at this stage is we are confined to the evidence that's been presented. Only if we win in the Supreme Court, would there be any opportunity to go back in state proceedings and reopen uh, the evidence so we could introduce this other material. Let me talk a little bit about some of that evidence that they have and your opinion on it. Michael's sister and brother-in-law. So they testified that she said this line about, I'll kill him before I let him leave me. Yeah. So they testified that they heard that come out of her mouth. What do you think of that? I think one of two things. The first is that couples say things in the heat of anger. I think we have all said things. In jest. In jest or I would say hyperbolically. I don't know if she's, because it's one thing to say you're, you're kidding. It's another thing to be angry and looking for the words to express your anger, even if those words wouldn't sort of manifest into action. I struggle to imagine someone who hasn't said, well, I hate someone so much I would kill them. Right. The problem is when we put somebody under a microscope at trial, then you sort of slice out the narrative. I mean, the state gets to set up the narrative. And the idea is that through cross-examination, through investigation, through the presentation of counter evidence, that the defense can show that story is not to be believed beyond all reasonable doubt. That's the process. But when he dies of a gunshot wound, then it seems to take on a significance that in a broader light, if you sort of zoom the camera out at the course of their life, the course of people's lives, might not be there. So I think there's a tendency to lend significance to statements like that in this context, because we want to assume that we, being people just out in the world, human beings, but also potential jurors, we've been brought up on narrative. We are a narrative species. And so we want to think that something is foreshadowing. What I'm hearing from you is you're not disputing that she said it, or that you're not saying they're lying. No, I'm not saying they're lying. I think they too may be sort of reading it as as more than it was meant because literal that she meant it literally as opposed to hyperbolically Mm -hmm. and i'm not saying i'm not sympathetic to that position they're siblings and we have a person who who had the opportunity to kill him who says she would kill him right you cannot share that news Uh, that that does not 
mean that, it, that she absolutely did. And it certainly mm -hmm. doesn't require the conclusion that she did. But that's sort of the difficulty with our system is that we sort of put all this out to juries and we let jurors infer what they will. So Tammy has gone into detail about a lot of abuse that she suffered during the marriage, whether as physical, emotional. Did she ever share any of those stories with friends before any of this happened? Was, is there any evidence that that this was something that was happening for a while before he died? I don't want to say no, but the, the answer is not that I know of. Okay. There's suggestion in the record from others that Michael had contemplated suicide and that there were issues between them. But I wouldn't doubt the truth of that narrative. This witness who alleged that Tammy had told her she had gotten Michael, quote, out of the picture because Tammy was having an affair. Did she have a motivation, you think, to make up that story? I mean, I read that she got out of prison four months after the trial, that sort of thing. So that kind of insinuates she cut a deal, but... It could be. That possibility is always there. Now, if there were a deal, if there had been a deal between the state and that witness, the state would have been obliged to disclose it to Tammy's lawyers. Even if there is no deal, people who are in the system are familiar with the way it works. And so more than a few times, enough times that you come to expect it, people will say things that they think will benefit them. Sure. It certainly doesn't hurt her to say it. I mean, she, what, what does she lose? Sure. I mean, who's going to prosecute her for perjury? How do you prove it otherwise? It's, it's consistent with the state's theory. And if the state gets a conviction, well, maybe they're grateful and maybe they are nice to her down the road. So that kind of thing does happen and it's not necessarily disclosable. And just to be clear, Brandon, Tammy denies it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, do you think she's ever going to get out of jail? Do you think she's going to get a second trial? Not as her lawyer, but as a maybe stand outside the box for a minute. I think so. I mean, not as her lawyer. It's hard for me to not be a lawyer, <laughs> but just not as her lawyer. Looking yeah, at yeah, the yeah. case, this case looks and feels so much like other cases where new trials were the right result. Cases where there is a compelling case for innocence that just did not get in front of a jury and ought to have. I mean, you struck something in me when you said, the appellate court didn't ask the right question of the available evidence that they looked mm. at, which was, yeah. did Tammy commit this? Right. They asked the wrong question. Right. Suicide or accident. And they shouldn't be asking that question. Yeah, right. Absolutely. The, the right question is, is Tammy criminally responsible? Whether Michael accidentally shot himself or intentionally shot himself, Tammy committed no crime. I agree with Brandon Boulard, and, you know, this case is just, for me, very different, and there's so many questions in this case really left to be answered. If I was a juror on this case, I do not know if I could have convicted her. Agreed. I think there's enough to at least give her a second trial. Yeah, I don't know about that yet. I, I think I want to learn more about it before I would vote for a second trial. But we certainly gave her a voice and that's what they asked for. And, you know, I just want to say also that I'm, I'm just very, very sorry to Michael's family. And a loss is a loss. He's gone. The rest is just really noise to them. So that's what you get on Crossing the Line. A packed show. Interviews, opinion and murder and missing person cases. And I just want to remind everybody to subscribe to the show and leave a review. And with that, I will be back here next week. Hope you are too.
Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Christina Everett. Special thanks to our producer, Catherine Law, and audio engineer, Brandon Dickert. Research is by Marissa Brown. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.